A reading based on Genesis 9, 8 through 17. A reading based on Mark 1, 9 to 15. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, As for me, I am establishing my covenant with you. And your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the domestic animals, and every living animal of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you. And every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant that is between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And a voice came from the heavens, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tested by Satan, and he was with the wild beast. And the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. I remember playing out in the garden as a child with a shovel, trying to dig a hole and wondering just how far I could dig. Could I reach the other side? I was amazed with the idea that straight through the earth on the other side was somewhere in Asia. I could not comprehend this distance, nor did I have any idea of the amount of rock I would have to dig through to get there that was just on the crust of the earth before reaching any of the many layers of the mantle that were still incredibly deep until you reach the earth's core. Humans have dug some pretty big holes by hand. In the Cappadocia region of Turkey in around 700 BC, people built the ancient city of Derinkuyu, stretching nearly 200 feet below the surface and holding as many as 20,000 citizens. 
This underground city included homes and wineries and schools. By, human, by, by hands, humans have dug even deeper into the crust. The biggest hand-dug hole is in South Africa and was dug by South African laborers in the late 1870s up till the 1910s. It is now known as the Big Hole. White South Africans were in search of diamonds, so they had black South Africans dig by hand 790 feet deep in awful conditions, removing 22 million tons of earth. I don't even know how to conceptualize that much earth. Over 5,000 black South Africans died from digging this hole. Their deaths a result of white greed for diamonds. The underground is terrifying. Going as deep as the big hole in South Africa would be claustrophobic, it would be dark. I would fear collapse, I would fear for my life. So why are we metaphorically journeying underground during Lent? Why should we take these scary journeys under? Chaska has taught me a lot about dahlias, the beautiful flowers whose heads can be as large as dinner plates. There are a couple of ways of growing dahlias. You can grow them from seed. However, if you grow them from seed, you never quite know what they're going to look like because the different colors and textures of flowers can cross-pollinate in the fields. And so if there's a field of yellow and red flowers that are cross-pollinating, you might get some sort of mixture of the two. Another way to grow them is through harvesting tubers from the previous season's dahlias. A dahlia tuber. Kind of looks like a potato. If you harvest the tubers, you know that the flower will look the same or similar, pretty similar to the flower from the previous year. You can grow a dahlia and know how it's going to look ahead of time. To grow a dahlia, uh, you can, uh, and, if you, and if you like how it looks from the previous year, you can find the tubers that multiplied over the summer, and then you can put them in dark, dry storage for the winter. So this dahlia was taken from a tuber last summer. Chaska put it in storage for the winter in our basement. She checks on them every so often, and all of a sudden, this one started sending up a small node shoot. That means that we need to get it in the ground as soon as possible. The only issue is that it's not spring yet. If we place it outside, it will die. So I'm going to plant it in a bucket of soil now. I'm going to dig down four inches into, from the surface into the dark, rich soil, sprout side up so that it can grow. Thank <laughs> you. 
Could we grow like dahlias from spending time under the surface? Our scriptures today are two stories about going under. Though instead of going underground, they're about going underwater. In Genesis, we have the story of Noah. As Genesis 6 states, Noah was a righteous and blameless man. He walked faithfully with God. However, like many Old Testament stories of destruction, the story of Noah has always been, sorry, sorry, stories of, yeah, the stories of destruction, the story of Noah has always been a hard one for me. What What am I to make of a God who destroys the world with a flood? Wasn't God, the God of the Hebrews, supposed to be unique because of the nonviolent creation story? Wasn't everything made good in the beginning? A few years ago, I wrote out some song lyrics to try to make sense of the story, and I'll read them to you now. If I were Noah, would I build a mansion ship upon a hill, a giant gate that would safely hide me from the world outside? If I were Noah, would I think of myself a righteous man when the stormy waters slowly rise to take those left outside? If I were Noah, would I lock that giant gate and seal their fate? Would I have the courage to look deep inside and question my dear God? If I were Noah, would I think the rainbow is a peaceful sign Could I tell my kids the sacred lie that everyone else deserved to die? When I hear this story, I question God. Was that you, the divine, loving, nonviolent, creative force for hope? I nearly feel immoral if I don't question this action. And actually, what I find most disheartening about the story of Noah is that Noah is not changed by this experience, at least what we hear from the scriptures, of watching all of the life get wiped from the earth. Our passage today, which was beautifully read by the Logos readers, was about the aftermath of the flood. We see God, who seems to be regretful about the flood, and that who states that they'll never do this again, but Noah is just... Noah. Noah doesn't change. Noah just keeps doing what God commands Noah to do over and over again. God commands him to build an ark. He does it. God commands him to take two of every animal, put them into the ark. He does it. Noah is obedient, righteous, blameless. I feel suspicious of this kind of covenant. A covenant where Noah just does all of the things God tells him to do without a critical thought in the world. It's almost as if Noah has no conscience, no sense of grief with this loss of life. Experiences of destruction like this should change a person, right? I would imagine that watching a flood unfold would be traumatizing. I get the sense that Noah doesn't want to go beneath the surface. He doesn't want to have to contend with the violence and pain that was drowned under the water. He doesn't want to have to contain, contend with his own emotions that were beneath his own surface. This past summer, the biggest blockbuster hit was the Barbie movie. 
At the beginning of the Barbie movie, everyone in Barbie land is perfect. Everything is great. Then Barbie throws a party with all the other, par all the other Barbies in Barbie land. Another one of her perfect Barbie parties. All different kinds of Barbies are coming to the party and dancing and having a blast. And they have a conversation that goes like this. Barbie one. This night is just perfect. Barbie two. It's perfectly perfect. Barbie three. You look so beautiful, Barbie. Barbie one. Thanks, Barbie. I feel beautiful. Barbie two. So do I. Barbie three. This is the best day ever. Barbie four. It is the best day ever. Barbie won. And so is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and so is the day after tomorrow, and even Wednesdays, and the day after from now until forevermore. Barbie three. Yeah, Barbie. Everyone cheers. Barbie one. Did you guys ever think about dying? <laughs> There's a record scratch. The party comes to a halt. Barbie one. I don't know why I just said that. I'm just dying to dance. And then they all start dancing, and the party resumes. Barbie is living on the surface. She's not going under. Everything is perfect. Everything is beautiful. Everything is fine. But the existential crisis hits her out of nowhere. It creeps up from under the surface. This creeping crisis gets bigger and bigger as time goes on, and as you watch the movie, it disrupts her whole perfect Barbie life. Barbie is like Noah. Never thought I would ever say that, but... <laughs> Barbie is like Noah, trying to keep a perfect world together above the surface. Here's the thing. I don't feel like I am too unlike Barbie or Noah. I understand not wanting to think about death, pain, and destruction all around us all the time. I don't like following the news. It's nearly unbearable. While, having trying, while I've been trying to follow the awful death and destruction that's happening in Palestine, it can be too much to hold. I found myself getting really sad last weekend after all of the events as we we hosted here on Sunday. Feeling for Tarek, sad that I'm part of a country that's funding the deaths of his loved ones, sad that I nearly feel hopeless. It feels easier for me to simply get on an arc, stay above the surface, and not deal with the pain that is happening away from my view under the surface. Like Noah, it'd be easier to let it not change me can I just be a good, righteous man instead? It's not just the painful things around the world that are under the surface. There are things in our own lives that we want to ignore. The band Dolls wrote a song just beneath the surface in their 2013 album, Stories Don't End, and the chorus of the song goes like this. Just beneath the surface, there's another part of me. At the root of all my trouble, in the twitch before I speak. With thoughts and revelations even I could not accept, just beneath the surface is where he will stay kept. Oh, just beneath the surface is where he will stay kept. We all have parts of ourselves we don't like to show. 
perhaps parts of ourselves that are too painful to talk about, too painful to want to even reflect on. To dig down to those parts of ourselves is scary. We don't always want to relive the painful life, parts of our lives. We might be scared of what we find, perhaps truth, finding a truth about ourselves we don't want to have to contend with. Our Mark passage today offers a different approach to staying on the surface. From Mark 1, 9 through 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Jesus was baptized. He actively chose to descend under the surface, not stay above it in an ark, but have his body plunged downward into the water. Jesus took the journey down into the dark, into the water, towards death. One way of understanding baptism is a metaphorical death, that when one chooses to be baptized, they're willing to go under the water to metaphorically die and come back reoriented in a new way of life. One goes down and then eventually comes back up. This last fall, I led a class of First Mennonite folks through a, a course called Transitions, a Sunday school class. We explored different ways, cultures, and traditions mark transitions in our lives, like graduations and weddings and funerals. But a lot of times, we don't mark other transitions in our lives, like a job change, like turning 63 years old, or maybe a spiritual renewal. So in this class, we explored different models for understanding these transitions. And one of these models for understanding a transition is the gospel model. Jesus dies, descends, and then resurrects. Metaphorically, like Jesus, in a transition, one dies and descends into the grave and eventually comes back up. As we undergo change in life, we lose something. Something dies. There's a death. When Flora was born, I went from having free evenings <laughs> to where I could do all my favorite things, like going to as many church meetings as possible, <laughs> to having no longer having the free time that I cherished deeply. It's not that I don't love Flora and didn't want this transition to happen. But when you have a transition in life, there are losses that need to be recognized no, no matter how beautiful the transition is. So with Flora and the new loss of free time, I made a descent downward. It was frustrating. It felt like a part of me was lost. Having to figure out who I was as a dad, as a husband, and how that all fit into being a pastor. And to be honest, I'm still trying to figure this out. I think I'm on my way towards resurrection, but here's the thing. We can't rush towards 
resurrection, you can't force it. You can't force new life. The descent happens to us. You might want to rush back up to the surface, but we still have hard work to do underground. It takes time. Resurrection is the last stage, and we have a few more weeks of Lent before we talk about resurrection. During Lent, we're going to hang around underground, under the surface, and grow our roots down there for a season. For us to have rooted faith, we need to have spent quality time underground, journeying like roots, down into spaces like Noah we don't want to have to, have to contend with. We want to stay in perfect Barbie land, partying every night, but in order to grow, we need to spend time with the Dahlia tubers under the surface. Perhaps we are struggling to know how to respond to the war in Gaza. Perhaps we're struggling with anger or sadness that's just beneath the surface. Perhaps we're struggling with a transition in our lives, a big change. And as followers of Jesus, we are to take this trip downward to tend to these things. Maybe this means sharing what it's like under the surface with someone. Maybe it means journaling or finding a spiritual director or a therapist or a friend to explore the underground with. But unless we take that plunge, the things under the surface will not grow. They will not become dinner plate-sized dahlias. They might even creep up as weeds and inhibit us in our growth during our lives. However, in following Jesus, we see Jesus taking this trip downwards over and over again in his ministry. First his baptism, then when he refuses to be a king and rise to the top during his time of temptation in the desert and wilderness. No, Jesus' ministry is tending to the wounds that everyone is carrying underneath the surface. Can we journey underground together, scratch the surface, tend to the pain of each other? In our transitions class, each week, we read a prayer that I would like to read a line from for you all. As we read it in class, a person in our group would go and they would grab dirt from the bucket and hold it with their hands as another member would read this. As we touch the earth, May we not fear the dark, but enter it expectantly, ready to learn of its ways. May we journey with Christ under the surface.